Hello and welcome to UX Like Us, the podcast for user experience designers, researchers, strategists, and charlatans. <laughs> I'm your user experience charlatan, Roman Burkott. Joining me as always is Larry King. Larry, how are you? I'm doing great. I figure if the charlatans are listening to us, they'll they'll be less charlat- charlatan-y, right? I'm pretty sure that's not how charlatans work. <laughs> you get a group of them together. <laughs> well, one one can hope. No, guys, we gotta be good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, you staying warm? I hope. Um, no, it's cold and snowy, and the kids are out of school, and yeah. So got a fire. Got a fire going in the fireplace. Sweet. Um, I had a. Irish coffee earlier because it just seemed like the thing to do. Yeah, right. And yeah, I'm I'm handling snow great. Kids don't have to go to school, so they're staying up late. And um, yeah, that's fantastic. Do they do they name polar vortices? Uh, this was not a named thing. Oh, they only yeah. usually name the storms, not the, the vortices. <laughs> they should. Yeah. It'll be like polar vortex Ichabod. Polar vortex freezing your ass off. And you're like, Jesus, so cold. Like in Minnesota, they had like negative 50 wind chills. Oh, it's crazy. Nuts. Crazy. Like, what happened? I asked the same thing about the desert, too. Like, what happened that somebody got here and was like, you know what? This is good enough. We'll, we'll just stay here. <laughs> <laughs> no offense to those who, who love cold weather, but man, it's crazy. What's going on, Roman? I've seen that you've been doing some writing lately. <laughs> well, I don't know that I'd go that far. <laughs> well, you have a blog post on Medium. And so in my mind, that's that's writing. Oh, so you're the one who read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's not so much a post. Well, I guess technically it's a post, but it's really just a list, right? <laughs> I, I, I read through it and I was like, I'm not going to let him get off the hook with just like putting out this post and writing a list of things and then not saying anything about it because I think they things need to be discussed because that's what we do here. We discuss things. Fair enough. Uh, sounds like uh, we're having an intervention. All right. So yes, <laughs> I, I published to my blog and then syndicated out to medium um, that other website, <laughs> an article called bold predictions for UX in 2019. Yes. So you get some bold um, bold predictions here, and I think we should talk about a few of them. So just to set the the context, um, just some ideas that kind of popped up to me um, in in response to somebody who was asking me about design strategies. That uh, does that mean you like you know you make predictions about the future? And uh, I've had a few people kind of you know think that that was the nature of what design strategy was all about, and like, no, I don't really do predictions. And it's not about predicting the future so much. But then it gave me the idea of, hey, why not try it? <laughs> no, bold predictions are not for the design strategist. Predictions are for the people writing blog posts and doing podcasts to get people to listen. That's all it is, really. It's 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 us being UX charlatans, really. Yeah, that's true. Or podcast charlatans, right? Number one is the bold predictions for UX in 2019. Prediction number one by Roman Burkott. Drumroll, please. <laughs> Designers don't know what we should call ourselves. Our podcast episode put to bed whether or not UX is a, a thing and whether user experience design is a, is a, a real title. Um, but since then, uh, I've been reading a lot about uh, product design. And uh, we even talked a little bit about that on the last episode. Uh, designers like to follow the trends and implement the the new data and, and revisit decisions. Um, then I think there's also a bit of a tendency to just kind of go along with, <laughs> with, with what's hot, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I can see both sides of it, but um, yeah, I think, I think you do what you need to do in the situation you are to, to advance your um, what you're trying to accomplish in whatever way you possibly can. Right. So like a lot of times, um, you know, you're starting out a new practice, you, you know, you want to call it the things that people want to call it because they people is like, oh, those UX people, they understand what that is. You know, like uh, at some point in our past, people didn't know what UX was and you had to do a lot of education about it. Right. But now it's like, oh, yeah, UX seems to be 
you know, table stakes for a lot of, for most product, um, especially, you know, electronic product teams. And so, you know, that's how you, you know, you get a foothold, but then once you've got a football foothold and you have UX team doing UX type stuff, and then you're trying to, um, advance the maturity of the team. Um, sometimes that fact that you are UX and not called something else kind of pigeonholes you into certain things or certain activities or certain assumed skill sets that you have that may not, that, that may limit you into, you know, how you can grow and become more influential into the company and bring more design um, thinking and practices into, you know, higher levels of the company to, to really, you know, affect, um, you know, how design benefits a company at a higher level. When you aggressively try to represent uh, the user and the user's best interest and, and, and what's right for the, the user, um, I think maybe a lot of our, our, our product uh, peers tend to look at us as not being interested in like the business problem and, you know, all the other things that go into designing a product. So I think in particular, this prediction was based around, uh, you know, revisiting the uh, debate or dilemma between uh whether we're UX designers, whether we're product designers, is there a difference? Is it, you know, is there a meaningful difference or is it just kind of what you prefer or what your you know company prefers? Um, I know I myself tend to think of myself more as a product designer than a UX designer. Um, but like you said, you, you also have to kind of be mindful of uh, who you're talking to. You know, it seems like a lot of uh, business leadership has finally come around to the idea of UX, what it is and it being a thing that's important, whether they understand it or not, uh, you know, at, at least they, it's generally understood that it's important. That's why it's really easy to be a UX charlatan because they don't understand it. <laughs> UX charlatan. <laughs> I might have to update my LinkedIn. <laughs> Design strategist and UX charlatan, Roman Burkhardt. Yeah, you know what? Everybody who listens to the show just every week when we do the uh, the title gag at the beginning, we should all just change our uh, our LinkedIn profiles. <laughs> That's a good idea. So it says here you're a user experience LaCroix drinker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's brilliant. Maybe, maybe we could do that on Twitter instead. Yeah, good times. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so yeah, so I guess, you know, the, the, what's the what's the final word on designers and what we should call ourselves? Are we going to continue to not know what we call ourselves? Are we going to continue calling ourselves the same things? Are we going to is product designer the 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 new hotness? And then next year there'll be something else. What's your prediction, Roman? Uh, our profession will continue to uh, spin and churn on a lot of the same things that have uh, had us wrapped up for a couple of decades now, and that's why we love this. This industry, right? <laughs> totally. It's what keeps us around. Otherwise, we'd get bored if we couldn't argue about stuff. So, number two, designers who know how to code will insist that designers should code. Yeah. And then the corollary, <laughs> point number three, designers who don't code will roll their eyes. <laughs> so, on this list of bold predictions, the first three have already proven true, and we're not even done with January. I'm a genius. <laughs> It's a brilliant. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there's the camp, and I I have a hard time arguing with them. The, the the camp that says that designers need to know how to code. Um, I think that's actually a less important topic than whether designers should code. Um, you know, the the interesting thing there being like I I think that UX practitioners should be well versed in the medium that they are creating for and you know it's it it's probably less critical now than it used to be back when i was like you would use photoshop to make a design that poor old css and standards compliant markup just could not do and we turned to doing all sorts of ridiculous stuff the the sliding doors uh tabs <laughs> design i remember crafting those and you know it was just uh it was fun, you know, like in, in terms of, uh, there was nothing, the CSS, there was nothing fun about table layout and spacer gifts, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I disagree. Well, I'm not talking about table layouts, but one generation past that, right. When you oh, finally, okay. 
finally able to use HTML and CSS. But then came the the premise of, hey, let's not pollute the HTML markup with a bunch of you know empty tags that don't mean anything. Let's try to have semantic markup. Nowadays, you know, CSS supports so such rich design. Um, and, and granted, there's you know there's always a ton left to be done on that. But comparatively speaking, it it's it's probably less critical than it used to be. But I, I do think it's important for um, designers uh, for the web to to understand the medium that they work in. Um, that said, do I think designers should be coding? Um, you know. As always, the answer is it depends. But for the most part, I would say no, right? I, I just, I don't see, unless you're in a really small shop where, you know, it's it's more feasible to wear every hat. But for the most part, I, I, I don't think it's practical to expect um, somebody who's skilled in design, particularly um, user-centered design, um, to also have the the bandwidth available. Even if you have the, the skills, the talent, and the desire to, to be coding, just having the bandwidth to do all of that effectively, it's hard to imagine. Yeah, I think one of the problems with designers should code thing, I, I, I mean, I totally agree with you that, you know, designers need to understand the materials that they're working with and understanding how HTML works, how CSS works, how even JavaScript works and, and, you know, not necessarily being able to, you know, code at a production level, but understanding what they do and how they work. Um, will actually go a long way to helping you be a better designer and working within the medium you're you're, you're working in. Um, that said, I don't think it's a bad thing for designers to be able to code at all. I mean, like if you had a designer that can code, that's amazing because now you've, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. you've sort of cut out the middleman. Um, I think one of the barriers that has come up for designers coding in recent years is front end development has become extremely complex. It's like software, it's like software oh, yeah. engineering now, as opposed to just <laughs> doing like HTML markup, right? They, they, yeah. you know, we've got all these like JavaScript frameworks and it's like all this full stack stuff. And, you know, just, it's just extremely complex to do web applications in most of these modern frameworks. And you have to have a CS degree to understand it, and, or at least, you know, have a lot of time spent learning how to do software development in order to even approach doing a you know coding up a a a web application in 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 today's modern frameworks and i think that's one of the you know one of the bigger barriers for designers to even be able to do that um you look at a company like uh uh what are they called they're called just basecamp now i was gonna say 37 signals but basecamp all of their front end people are designers and they do the front end code and they even do dip in a little bit into the into the ruby and the rail stuff in the background as well because they have this nice clean framework that you know it doesn't take you know a, like a hardcore software engineer to be able to understand and be able to create your designs in the medium of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, right? Um, they don't use these big heavy frameworks. They do this pre-rendered thing where it's like, you know, here is, you know, they they hand code HTML, JavaScript, and 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 when they're doing their um, their layouts for stuff. So I think the the software engineering taking over and making it complex is the thing that's made it the biggest barrier for designers to be able to, you know, code their own ideas. I agree. Once we started getting into like uh, CSS preprocessors and all that, I was thrilled about the amount of capability that was being introduced with like less and SAS. Um, but at the same time, that's when I started just getting to the point for me where I was like, this isn't really fun anymore. The, like the abstraction just really kind of robbed some of the, the joy out of it for me. Um, nevertheless, I, I think that the designers who can code, uh, hats off to you. Um, that's amazing. Um, but I'm also kind of poking fun too. Like the, you know, the, the folks who, who can do it, uh, are generally not too bashful about reminding everybody else, uh, that they can, and that that makes them somehow superior. So for the rest of us, uh, prediction number three, we're going to continue to roll our eyes. Yes, absolutely. Cause it, still depends you do not have to be somebody who has to code to be able to do design the way to see that that it's true that designers don't necessarily need to code is um you would never have a a twitter war about how coders need to know how to design (laughs) i i actually disagree i would i would i would chime in on that war because i would say that developers are designing 
Because they're making decisions that affect the end user experience. And therefore, they are designing. They're totally they may be designing. Doing, they may be doing unconscious design. Uh-huh. If we were going to go into the uh, maturity model that Jared Spool <laughs> talks about. Yeah. But they're they're designing. And so, therefore, the more design skills we can get into the hands of developers, the better our products are going to be. They are designing. And, uh, you know that word should yes they they should be able to design um but nobody would argue that all programmers must be designers <laughs> nope i've never heard anybody make that argument four user stories will specify the solution rather than the problem what are you trying to say here at, at risk of uh being too specific uh <laughs> <laughs> I happened to be looking uh, through user stories when uh, this one occurred to me. Which user stories would those be? No. <laughs> Never <laughs> All <mind>. of them. <laughs> All of them. <laughs> no, it's one of those things. I, you know, even people who are generally good at writing user stories, um, so often I think we find ourselves in the mode of getting too done, like getting writing a user story in such a way that it can be pushed forward. Um that everybody easily understands what it is that we have to do so that we can estimate it so we can build it so we can ship it. And it's, it's a bummer because, you know, one of these core aspects of, of what makes agile methodology so cool is the idea that the team is going to work together to identify, you know, to figure out what's going to be the solution to a given problem. Um, and yet, uh, just operational tempo itself, you know, has a way of pushing you into, uh, hey, I need, uh, you know, a button that does this when you click it, <laughs> you know, so then we just quickly learn how to hack the system to say, as a user, I want a button that computes my taxes <laughs> when you click it. <laughs> yeah, 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 I, I, yeah. Let me rewrite number four for you. So this, so it's it's much clearer. User stories will continue to specify the solution rather than the problem. I think, yes. I think that makes more sense to me. Yes. Uh, more of the same. <laughs> more of the same. No, I think that it's, it's a really good point. I mean, user stories should be describing a problem and, and, and not a solution. Because um, um, I see this thing over and over again. We might have talked about this already. As soon as... As you mention a solution to a problem, it's very difficult for people to start to stop thinking about the problem outside of the parameters of the solution that has been described. Um, and that's the thing that I, I think is is dangerous in product development is like, you know, finding, you know, instead of talking about problems, we talk about a solution. And then once we talk about that first solution, that kind of sounds like it's the thing that would solve the problem. And then if you have a room of people and they start talking about it and they start all rallying around it, and then that's the thing you deliver and you just automatically shut down all thought about other solutions to that problem that might have been a better solution. So I, yeah, I totally agree that, you know, having the solution inside of the user story itself is automatically shuts down any other thought, any creative thought about how to solve the problem, because there's no problem definition there. Well, there's a there's a good reason to do that, though, and it's because of uh, bold prediction number five. Agile releases will have scope and release dates defined prior to planning. So, yeah, that goes uh, right along with uh, with number four there. Um, this came up uh, again. Great, great tweet from John Cutler talking about projects that have the, um, you know, the scope and the release date defined ahead of time have one of three outcomes well you miss the date you don't deliver the features or what you do, do deliver is crap i imagine that's the that's the three things that pop in my head yeah pretty much how i said you move the date uh oh no you always move the date because you're never done by the date well that's that, just yeah i mean <laughs> especially especially in the situation described by the uh bullet point number five yeah, yeah. where you've decided the scope and release before planning absolutely you're not you're not making that date because there's no amount of of, of feature pruning that you can do and still um uh deliver that product and 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 without looking kind of foolish because there's obvious things missing and quality not working and blah 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 uh yeah 
it's a prevalent enough problem that you know just a, a casual scroll through my twitter feed you, you hear people talking about this all over the place so it's it's certainly not unique everybody seems to struggle with this but there's that tendency to want to say hey here's what i'm gonna uh, release and here's when i'm gonna release it and then going turning around and telling the team you know okay um, so now <laughs> go do your grooming and your estimation and all your rituals. Meantime, <laughs> you know, the, the clock's been ticking <laughs> the entire time. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's a, um, it's a fool's errand for sure. Yeah. But yet I would love to, I'd love some data on just how prevalent that is because I would say it's probably extremely prevalent. Yeah. Frankly, I think you'd have to be looking at, the outliers to see, you know, an organization that could say, here's, you know, here's the direction that we want to go in, but uh, we're not going to tell you exactly what features we're shipping or when, um, you know, and, and until closer to the date, because the, the team has to work that out through a series of, of rituals. Yeah. Executives don't want to hear that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. They want to know, what am I going to get? When am I going to get it? Or better yet, this is what I want, and I want it by now. Right. I'm struggling to think of myself as as not part of the problem because even I want to know what are we shipping and when. <laughs> you know, let's just, let's yeah. start from that. <laughs> but but there, there's a process to get there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, software estimation is a extremely hard thing to do, and it's like infinitely harder than the already hard task when you don't even go through any process and you just say, "Hey, we're going to do this thing and." By this date. So um, even when you explore the known things and estimate what unknowns might be out there, there's still all the unknown unknowns. And those are the ones that bite you in the ass. There's um, always unknown unknowns in software. Always. Yeah, every time. Every time. And that's what makes it so much fun. That's why we do this, isn't it? No, that's not why we do this, actually. <laughs> That, that might be just a whole nother episode at this point. <laughs> Why do we do this? <laughs> Let's quickly move on. To- <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> number, uh, what, oh, we're at number six. Number six. six. Number six. Designers will rant about diversity and inclusion on Twitter without testing accessibility on their products. <sighs> I love it. So I don't I don't mean to to sound too cheeky on this because one of the things I absolutely adore about our profession is that we collectively speaking are taking things like diversity and inclusion very seriously that we recognize that as as the people who are dreaming up what is next you know whether it's a product or a service or an organization designers are the people who have to believe that we can make a future that's different and hopefully a little better than today. So I absolutely love that about uh, about us. At the same time, I've been fired up about web accessibility since, uh, gosh, 2003. That was when uh, I was the base webmaster for Marine Corps Base Camp Pendleton. And uh, due to... Uh, I believe it was a federal ruling, a federal court ruling. All federal websites had to pass Section 508 accessibility standards and quick. And I remember at the time, um, that was where my own thinking had to evolve on it because um, like many other Marines who were you know, put out by the need to do all this in, in the middle of a war, <laughs> you know, it, it started with, people would say, what are blind people doing on our website, right? Like, why would we have to do this? This is stupid. And in just a couple of short years, like the whole perception there changes because you have friends who are coming back from a war blinded, right? You have people who you know are coming back from a war missing limbs. And so that was where I was like, oh man, this this accessibility stuff, this is no joke. It's not just something we should do because, you know, there's standards for it. It's not just something we must do because there's laws around it, but it's something we have to do because it's so important for the people wh- whose lives can be changed by by the web. I mean, the things that are available to disabled people through the internet is so radically different than just, you know, a generation ago. 
anyway, I get fired up about it. Um, and I, I, I love that we talk a lot about um, diversity and inclusion. Um, but man, I, I would love to see the design profession get a little bit more serious about accessibility on the stuff that we already are making. Yeah, I had a similar experience when I was in grad school. Um, in one, I was a, uh, I went to the University of Baltimore, uh, majored in interaction design and information architecture as a master's program. And in one of the classes I took, I can't remember even which one it was. Um, our professor brought in a blind person into the class, and that person basically showed us how they use a laptop. Oh, wow. It was the first time I ever saw anybody use a screen reader. Mm -hmm. And oh my gosh, that screen reader like reads so fast. You can't even (laughs) believe how fast it's reading. But that person Uh is like so used to it. They can, you know, they they follow along no problem. And that was like eye-opening to, it's like, this is how this person uses the web. They have something that like reads that entire page to them. Now it's reading it in in certain, you know, things. And if you mark it up, mark up your page properly with good semantic tags and semantic markup, it makes it much easier for them to figure out what the hell's going on in that page. Right. Uh Um, But uh, just watching them, you know, be able to use that and be able to do anything that you and I could do on, on, on web pages was like fascinating to me. Typically the way accessibility gets into a product is one. It is because it's, you know, there's some sort of, mandate that it has to be 508 compliant but we know all know 508 doesn't equal accessible accessible right. Right? right um but there's some sort of mandate for 508 compliance or you have companies that have been sued like target back in um you know around 10 years ago when i was mm-hmm. um or 12 oh god it's been <laughs> anyway it was a while ago um tar- target got sued for their online presence because they weren't accessible and just this year or this past year Domino's was also in the same um oh yeah in the, yeah. In, the, in, the in the same boat where it's like the 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 federal guidelines if you are a public you know store facing company you have to have accessibility just the 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 same the the same laws that says you have to have you know ramps and and accessible toilets and all those things and 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 handicap parking out front also applies to people coming to your website and trying to use your website um, to do the same thing that somebody who doesn't have your disabilities can do. And so, you know, that's one way of doing it. And then the third way is mostly it's designers. It's designers that care and that give a mm-hmm. shit. Mm-hmm. And that's how accessibility happens um, is because you just have people that, you know, actually care about that, that, you know, that aspect of design and, want to make sure that that happens. And so, you know, there's, uh, there's a bunch of different, you know, pressures that go into that, but um, I would like to think that, you know, the design community is one of the people that are, you know, carrying that torch for accessibility because it's so important. Yeah, absolutely. Number seven, flat design will be less, slightly less flat. <laughs> Didn't that already happen? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm pretty sure we're going full on skewmorphic like any day now. Right. You know, that's, that's what I keep waiting for. Um, not that I'm not that I'm eager for it because I, I I think you know skeuomorphism as a concept is is fine uh, especially where it helps aid the the you know the user with what's happening then there's stuff that's just like crazy overboard I remember like the the stitches in the leather and the calendar and the iOS like just made me hopping mad <laughs> that was that was like a total steve jobs things you know that right totally yeah there was like a total he saw some sort of corinthian leather stitched on some <laughs> like some like planner or uh-huh. like on the seat of some italian sports car or something i don't even know what it was and he was like oh we gotta have that in the in the notes app oh yeah i mean <laughs> absolutely like <laughs> Like when you see a, a car with really nice leather seats and you see that real attention to detail that they put into stitching and, and stuff like that, it's breathtaking. It really is stunning. But um, no matter how realistically you render it, uh, doing that for your calendar app, just it's not the same. And that's not the attention to detail that I'm looking for in in the software that I use. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's other details that i would like them to pay attention to like does it work does right, it do right. the thing i want to do is it fast is it freaking impossible <laughs> to get the correct time zone <laughs> does it bring me joy <laughs> you, know. <laughs> you know the important thing oh i love it 
have you been watching that, by the way? I have not been watching oh, that. But I, I'm, a, I, I'm, I'm aware fan. of the phenomenon. I was a big fan of the book. Uh, and so then when I saw it pop up in my Netflix queue, I'm like, this is brilliant. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the webcam behind me and you see all the crap in this room, you know, you know <laughs> that I don't actually subscribe to that philosophy. Well, all that stuff must spark joy. Yes. Everything in this room sparks joy. Yeah. All these freaking dongles. Oh, that's <laughs> Uh, eh, I think we're done with that subject. Yeah. <laughs> no. Oh, actually, there, there, there's one thing I wanted to, to mention about that. Like, there is like some new skeuomorphism thing that we just recently saw. Um, somebody has rigged up the front-facing camera of an iPhone to like take on the ambient light of the room and have that reflected on the user interface of whatever you're looking at right now. So if you're like, for instance, you would see like reflections and lighting and stuff on the thing that you're looking at. Like it was actually reflecting the light in the room. I, uh, one of the <laughs> did you see this? No, no this is it was, it was pretty cool. It's like some former Apple, Apple employee. And one of the demos he had of it was it, it was like this mother of pearl, like you know, being a, a guitar maker, you know, having like mother of pearl inlays on a guitar and how the light shines off it as you move the you know the guitar like the you know it's got that mother of pearl it's like this really complex reflective surface and uh-huh. as you move it you know the the reflections change and you can see the light going off in different directions and catching the mother of pearl in a different way well he had a demo of something similar like that on there and when you moved it around it looked like you had a piece of something with mother of pearl inlay and it was like reacting to all the ambient light around you and it was really fascinating so that i think that's like the next uh skeuomorphic turn is once they get that to a point where it's performant and doesn't like completely drain your battery in five minutes after you're doing that <laughs> um that may be something it's probably 10 years away like um you know computational and battery uh uh technology um wise but it looks pretty interesting well we'll have to put that in the show notes because in my mind's eye all i can picture is like your phone turning invisible because it's mimicking the uh, environment around it <laughs> It's camouflaged. <laughs> so number eight, number eight on Roman's list for bold predictions for UX in 2019. Design tools will work together seamlessly, except for every time Sketch updates. So I love how uh, Sketch has such a cool ecosystem around it. And, you know, we could talk at length about how I think that was a, a real core recipe to their uh, success, strategically speaking. Um, Absolutely. You know, the the ecosystem that has sprung up around it uh, in no small part uh, due to a lot of what uh, Envision has had to do too, right? Like it's really advanced sketch into a whole nother realm of, of capabilities. Oh, Envision is totally like building on top of the sketch platform and then trying to move beyond it <laughs> and, yeah, and, yeah. and not succeeding. <laughs> but that's another topic. Yeah, right. Studio. Sketches really amazing and the uh the ecosystem the designers and have have built around it is amazing so impressed with how powerful uh, and advanced our tools are becoming uh design systems are really amazing and then sketch updates and everything just stops working <laughs> it's just and there's like a day or two where you can't get anything done because all your plugins don't work yeah exactly and it's like um having to you know train my my reflexes away from updating sketch you know when i when i open it it's like hey we have a new version available and you're gonna love my features like no must resist uh must find out what's broken (laughs) but yeah a big part of you know what i'm referring there too is just the sketches uh a real juggernaut a force to be reckoned with it looks like adobe is uh you know trying to get their their strategy back on track for for xd and maybe they'll um be able to regain some of that market share but for right now sketch is where it's at yeah um yeah i don't know i i started trying out adobe xd at some point and was unimpressed with it but i haven't touched it for a very long time because i try not to put adobe products on my computer because i think their experience of having software in your computer in general just basically sucks so um i try to avoid that would you like some software to manage your software? 
Exactly. That's the point. <laughs> I don't need software to manage my software. I really, really don't. I'm in no rush to 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 run back to Creative Cloud. Um, however, I will say that again that they're creating a bit of the uh, community uh, marketplace around uh, XD and some of the stuff that they just released around um, enabling prototyping of voice interactions is pretty compelling. I I haven't used it myself, so I don't know how good it is at this Interesting. point. Interesting. I didn't know they were playing in that space. That's fascinating. That definitely seems to be the area. Pretty much everything interaction-oriented is where Sketch is going to have a hard time moving. Um, you know, Envision has been looking to kind of fill that gap. Um, but I, I think that kind of makes it even harder for Sketch to, to, to go into that direction. Which brings us to number nine. Design tools will enable much richer interactions, which will still feel awkward and foreign. <laughs> so, uh, as we were just discussing, XD is adding some uh, pretty cool stuff. Uh, Framer X and uh, what's the other guys? UI Pen. Uh, UX Pen. UX, UX Pen. Same thing. UI Pen, UX Pen. They're the same. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> Uh, yeah, UX Pen and just, uh, uh, again, a, a wealth of really killer tools. And I'm particularly um, tickled by the ones that are advancing our abilities to do um, rich interactions, right? So nice easing and curves and all that good stuff. It's so cool. But there's that that thing still where, you know, you you fire up the the samples of uh, what they were what was built with that particular tool and once you get over wow this uh, this interaction is so cool and you know start to look at it with a critical eye then you realize wow there's that animation was amazing right now but if I had to do this every time I used uh, an app or a product <laughs> you know if I had to sit through this animation every time I put something in my basket on amazon i would i would uh, strangle somebody <laughs> what are you saying that like every time you like click click add to cart and the thing does the genie effect like on the the dock on the mac just like <laughs> kind of just like whoosh yes. right into your cart every uh, single yeah. time you do that uh yeah i do i, I i've got the genie effect turned off because that I, that is just too much I must every be single time using the same app as, as you because I haven't seen that. Like it, yeah, it's like when you when you um when you minimize a window in Mac OS and it just like swoops itself into the dock for you. So it's like, oh, we, I was here and now I'm this little icon on the dock and the swoopy genie effect. Like it's like the <laughs> it's like the window, like you know, going like uh, the genie from Aladdin and just like oh, yeah, swirling yeah. into like the tiny little living space, you know. You know that line? It's like, great big genie powers. Eeny little space. <laughs> so your point in here is like people doing animations aren't are doing things that are awkward or you're talking the design tools are making it awkward to create them. I what, what's, your, what's your point here? No, no, just that the experiences that we design because we're getting to a place of being able to um, quickly and easily make these rich interactions that we're going to blow right past uh, what should we design in favor of what can we design. Ah, but what can we design is so much fun, Roman. Exactly, exactly. Uh, I think it was actually an, an Adobe XD, um, like a UI kit that somebody was putting out. It had these really crazy, like, cool animations so that when you would swipe, it almost had, like, a liquid effect. And I was like, wow, that was really cool and just so smooth and interesting but again i was like wait a minute if i had to do this more than a couple of times uh i'd just i'd be at my wits end right i think there's like a there's there's a delicate balance of oh, yeah. the usefulness of the animation the pleasure that you get out of the animation from whatever interaction that you're 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 doing that and then also the longevity of that delight that you get from it right because mm -hmm. um, you know, you can might have something that's like, oh, it seems really cool a couple of times and then, you know, becomes uh, a, a bit dreadful after doing it multiple times. So, for example, I have a Hyundai and so do you, I. Yeah. When you turn off the car, it plays a, 
like a sound icon, like dun, 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 dun. And you can imagine how long I thought that was delightful before I had to turn it off. <laughs> like, oh man, it's just like turning off windows. Oh man, it's just like turning off windows. <laughs> yeah. My Hyundai's 14 years old. It doesn't do that. Thank God. Which is a statement about Hyundai there, right? Statement about Hyundai there. I got a 14 year old car that's just like, it, it just runs. And you know what? I've, I've barely put any money into it. Like no major repairs whatsoever. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, that's, just I mean, that's, regular maintenance stuff, and that's basically it. Because that's still four years past their crazy warranty. So, Yep. Yeah. That's why they can offer that crazy warranty, because it those cars actually last. Now, it's not the greatest experience of car driving. <laughs> it's not like, you know, uh, it's, but, you know, it, it works. UX Like Us is brought to you by Hyundai. Hyundai. <laughs> <laughs> cars that are not exactly pleasurable, but they work. For a really long time. <laughs> the okayest car on the road. <laughs> You'll be stuck with it for a long time. <laughs> right. With, with America's best warranty, you'll be stuck with it the rest of your life. <laughs> what are your predictions for the year ahead? Uh, taking some of the uh, snark out of things, uh, I'd be very interested to hear what, what people uh, see coming on the horizon. And so I, you know, we're, you know, what, eight episodes into this thing. And I decided, you know, let's, let's start a Twitter account. Cause that's what you're supposed to do. Right. So we, we have a Twitter now. It's at UX like us at UX like us at UX like us. Well, that's just fun to say at UX like <laughs> us at UX like us at UX like us. So we have a Twitter account and it has exactly one follower right now. It's, it's, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> We're bad at promotion. Uh, next week, we're going to have our first guest on the show. And that's going to be Kevin M. Hoffman, author of the book Meeting Design. It's available on Rosenfeld Media or wherever finer books are sold. So you know what that means, Roman. What does it mean, Larry? It's time for Stuff Designers Love. You know what? You know what designers love? Let me tell you. Let me tell you what designers love. Designers love reports about the state of design in our industry. That's what they love. Oh, that is some good navel gazing. <laughs> Absolutely. But it's navel gazing with like hard data behind it, right? Is it? <laughs> Well, we could get into that. All right. Uh, so what are we talking about here? <laughs> so our, our friends over at Envision put out a new report called The New Design Frontier. And this is being billed as the widest ranging report to date examining design's impact on business. Very cool. So they're talking. You know, so they want to they, they had this idea. They wanted to explore um, the impact of design you know, on, on businesses, like on hard numbers, like, you know, how, how is design actually making businesses more successful? Right. Nice. And so they talk about, they talked about with talked with 2,200 designers interviewed around the globe. They did, they did um, quantitative and qualitative data and they talk about all the rigor that they're doing behind it and how it's all like, you know, blah, 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 very, very rigorous as far from what I can tell, I'm not going into the details, but but very rigorous was this 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 um this this research. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then there's like some fine print. Uh oh, the fine print is as with any research, there are limitations that you should be aware of. Right? <laughs> Survey participants were selected from Envision's contact database, which no. includes current clients, past clients, and people who have signed up for marketing communications. That no. means this isn't a random sample. The analysis is based on self-reported data from individuals who may have biases responses and may not have completed understanding of the design practices in their company. Wow. So this is all based upon self-reported data, right? Now, even, God, even that I could, you know, I could cope with, but just the whole idea that it's limited to Envision's design ecosystem. Yes. So if that's not a biased sample, I don't know what is. Yeah. But anyway, so it's talking about, so, and so they talk about, you know, impact and businesses, but it's all self-reported. Like for instance, let me, let me find a thing here. 
Okay, so here's a good one. So this is uh, maturity. So they have a mature their own maturity model. Oh God, how many maturity models are there for US and China now? Um, you know, when I was starting the the practice I'm in right now, I was like looking for one, and I ended up with uh, Leah Bowie's um, uh, uh, maturity models, the one she developed for Forrester when she was working there. And I thought it was a pretty good maturity model, and that's the one I started using. And then, of course, Jared Spool has his own maturity model that you know is the you know. Uh, unconscious design, conscious design, and you know, that whole thing. And then yeah. um, you also have, I think Nielsen Norman group has their own maturity model for usability and things like that. And now Envision has their own maturity model. Is it trademarked? Uh, patent pending. <laughs> uh, so you've got, <laughs> so they've got five levels. It goes from producers to connectors, to architects, to scientists, to visionaries. And they have descriptions what all those things are in between. So, um, and then at the different maturity levels, they talk about how much impact you have to the business. And, but of course it's all self-reported impact, right? So, um, so if you're in the highest level, the visionary part of the thing, then the, um, self-reported impact is you have, uh, a huge impact on revenue, cost savings, time to market and valuation, as opposed to, um, the, uh, the baseline, which is much, much lower in those things. So, I mean, what they're trying to say is like the more mature that a design practice is, the bigger impact you have on those hard, you know, numbers that CEOs and C-level people are looking at all the time, mm-hmm. um, like revenue, um, you know, cost savings, getting more money from existing customers, um, things like that. So, um, interesting how that is, you know, it's self-reported. Like, are, do people really know that they had that much impact on revenue? Because it really does go up, um, as they go up, you know, the maturity level, you know, the, the maturity model in there, it, it, there's a significant difference between the lowest part of the security, the, the maturity model and the highest part of the maturity model, especially on these hard numbers. And it seems like in the, you don't have the impact on those hard, you know, sea level numbers until you get to the highest level of their maturity model. Well, this is stuff designers love. So (laughs) let me lead with why I love this study. I I love that we're attempting to quantify the impact of design on our organizations. There was a time where I was really starting to worry that uh, design and UX was becoming just another business buzzword to the point that, you know, we were going to burn out and, you know, then end up on a <laughs> on a street corner somewhere. So I, I appreciate that they put a lot of effort and time into trying to quantify the impact of design. That said, um, my biggest gripe, and I have a few gripes with that study, but my biggest gripe is that they're quantifying qualitative data. They're saying, you know, 80% of people said that they had a big impact. <laughs> you know, that's not, that's not saying what the numeric impact was. It's not saying, you know, 80% have increased revenues by $1 million or more. Again, like you said, it, not only is it self-reported, which again, I, I could forgive that because you got to ask people, um, but to put it into a statistical format, it makes it sound as if it's a lot more official than, you know, you, you have to take a grain of salt there. Then the other, you know, big point there is that you know, correlation is not causation, right? So as you go up the maturity model, you also are finding that people are reporting that they're having substantial business impact. And so that's good and it's informative and it's helpful, but it still doesn't tell my boss and my boss's boss what uh, quantifiable impact they should expect. There's not a benchmark there that says, oh, if I implement a, a, you know, a mature UX program at my company, I can expect a, you know, a 12 to 20% lift in a certain metric. It's just, it's not that. So hopefully we'll get there. And I agree. I, I, I love that they put the report out and I appreciate that they're trying to quantify that. Yeah. I think that, um, I, I think all these studies are interesting because I mean, there's been similar studies in coming from different angles. Like they had like the, there's like the design maturity index, which measures companies that are supposedly design forward companies that um, over a period of time outperform mm-hmm. the S&P 500 
um, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. in, in valuation um, over time. Those are interesting to me. I, I, I'm, I'm off, often fuzzy about the details of what their criteria of a design um, focused company mm-hmm. is. Um, but I often use that as a justification for yeah, yeah. <laughs> design teams, right? Because it's like, hey, I believe, and I, and I really do believe this, that the good work that designers do on products affects the bottom line in a positive way. Totally. I, 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 I truly, truly believe that. Now, connecting the dots from the activities that we do and um, to actual, you know, sales and revenue and, and increased um, reoccurring revenue and, re- you know, increased, you know, decreased costs and all those things that, you know, the C-level are looking at. Um, I believe that we have effect on that. But, you know, threading the needle through all those things and, 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 and proving that is it's, 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 it, it can be tricky. Right. Um, but I like things like this because it allows us to have a sort of another data point saying that, yes, here, you know, here's another study that shows that, you know, the, the value of design in an organization and that, you know, investing in this is actually a good thing and doing the things that good design teams do is helpful and is worth the investment because we will affect the bottom line. Um, I think the, the the challenge there, like I said, is to is to thread the needle to, you know, and how that, you know, actually works in the organization that you are so that you can, you know, be credible ab- about it. It's like, hey, yeah, this is how it works in in the, you know, in the, the design world. But how is it actually going to work in the organization that you are? And that's the kind of thing you still have to sort of thread the needle through to to, to tell that story in your unique situation in the unique, you know, design and product company that you're in. Well, hopefully this report helps legit designers, but it's probably also going to help UX charlatans. <laughs> yes, probably. But that's all right. Real UX people need jobs too. So in addition <laughs> right. to the charlatans, right? <laughs> we can't all be brilliant. We're just all above <laughs> average. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you don't have a preferred podcast app, we recommend Overcast available on the iTunes app store. Or you can learn more at overcast.fm. Yes, and you can also follow us on Twitter at UX Like Us. Nice. Did we did we tell them to like and subscribe too? Because that's the thing you're supposed to do. I learned this from my daughter and YouTube. Like and subscribe. Smash the subscribe button. As always, it's been a pleasure. See you next time. Alexa, make my sketch prototype work.